It's go time. Christmas comes in June. It's football time, everybody. Welcome to Quick Kicks here on Third Down Gamble. It'll be our last Quick Kicks before we head into the regular schedule of our programming. Don Charbon along with Heath Graham and Pat Mooney. Lots to talk about as we go into the 2023 season. We're hours away from opening night. Of course, we record the night before. It's a Wednesday for us. The first game will be Thursday. Where you look around this league, it is a real guessing game as to how things are going to shape up and who's going to shake out as the top team. Parity can certainly be the name of the game in the CFL. Any given week, it's a bit of a cliche, but we have seen teams with undefeated records going 7-0, 8-0, going in and losing to a team that's got one win in their first seven or eight games. Anything is possible. Right now, the records are all even. Everybody is tied at 0-0, and it's time to kick off and see where things shake down. At this point, all the prognostications are just conjecture and... Just that. (laughs) Just that. Just that, yep. Right now, all of the uh, prognostications are just that, and we have to see how things are going to come out as they start playing with the bullets flying. One of the things that we have to keep in mind, and last year was a very big anomaly, it was the second most wins by road teams ever in the Canadian Football League since that stat's been kept. And the year that this was outclassed was 1961. Interesting that the road teams won more than 50% of the football games. It's so rare, but only one weekend did the home team sweep. That was opening weekend. There's a couple of teams that were responsible for that with some poor home records. The Edmonton Elks went winless again at home. And the Ottawa Red Blacks had quite a winless streak at home as well. So when you take those two into consideration, the rest of the teams at home had fairly decent records overall. I don't see that repeating this year. I think there's going to be more parity in the league as some of those basement dwellers should improve this year, in my opinion. If you look at the home losing streaks that are ongoing, Saskatchewan since July 8th of last year. Why is July 8th so significant? Garrett Marino on Jeremiah Mazzoli and that infamy. It's a six-game losing streak at home for the Rough Riders. They are on a seven-game losing streak overall. Ottawa, since September 24th of 2021, they defeated Edmonton that night. It's 12 games in a row at home that they haven't won. 623 days if you're keeping score. Edmonton, of course, has the longest streak of any team, and they've set the record Since October 12th, 2019, a win over BC, the last time the Elks won at home, 17 straight games, 1,337 days. If they win on the weekend, then that all comes to an end. And I'm sure Chris Jones and that entire organization are sick of hearing about this. They have a unique and very innovative offer to fans where one section in a game could be going for free if the Elks lose at home. I think it's a great promotion. 100%. It's 
the Elks have suffered a little bit at home with attendance, both based on their recent performance on the field and then some off-field factors have played in a little bit as well. It's a great promotion to try to draw some of that loyalty back. My question is, how many losses to start the season at home is it going to take before that doubt starts to creep in for the players and maybe they start to feel a little bit of a jinx? If it's Edmonton, it's one. And if they lose to Saskatchewan on their opening night at home, that's huge. It is. Edmonton needs to to at least be very close on this one to give some optimism for the fans to get them back in their seats. And I'm, I'm hopeful that they will be able to improve their record this year and get, get some momentum behind their team. And that's going to be a story I think we're going to hear in a bunch of different cities. We... We'll hear a little bit about it in Toronto with Chad Kelly now at the helm. We're going to hear a lot about it in Montreal because there's a new ownership group running the show and there's going to be some pressure on Cody Fajardo to put up or shut up. Ottawa's the other one. Without Jeremiah Mazzoli for at least the first week, most likely the first two with the bye coming after that, it's going to be on the shoulders of Nick Arbuckle to carry that team. The fan base there is fantastic, but they're getting upset that this team isn't performing better, got a lot to prove. And what you do is you go out and win early to get that fan base believing in you again. Winning can quickly change the perception of everybody involved from the players and management to the fans. A couple of wins off the bat, especially for the Elks to break that home losing streak are going to be huge for them and their, their push to improvement up the standings. The other thing that we can look at too with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders having lost seven straight and basically having not won a game since September of last year. After the Marino hit on Mazzoli, the team won two games, both on the road, the rest of the season. They went from a winning record to a losing record in a heartbeat with that streak. There was a lot of conjecture at the time that the coach lost the room, that because he waffled on what was happening with Marino over this, there are a lot of new faces in Regina, especially at quarterback. Is it enough for Craig Dickinson to meld them together enough that he can save his job? Well, they're going to have to come out and and be very competitive in order for not only Craig Dickinson, but also Jeremy O'Day to be able to continue those contracts another year. Saskatchewan fans have high standards and Last year was an extremely disappointing year, and we see that in a reduction of season ticket holders this year, and we'll, we'll find out if the walk-up is strong enough. If they don't get off to a good start, I think you may see some fans start to turn there as well. Do we look at a mid-season coaching change if things aren't going well now that they're in that last year? I know there was some hesitancy in the previous season because both coach and GM were under an additional year of contract. Now it's a little bit cheaper for the for the uh, the buyout if necessary does a three and five start cost coach dickinson his job how much is it going to take how much success does he need to go through this entire season and does he need at least to make it to a western final to have any chance at saving his job going into labor day last year the team was on the good side of the ledger in terms of wins and losses If they wanted to do something, they could have and 
maybe should have gotten rid of Dickinson at the end of last season, even if it is a major hit on the coach's cap and does hamstring you. If you're going to keep him on board just because you want to cut down your losses in terms of financial hit in the cap, that's a tough sell. It puts Jeremy O'Day in a really tough bind. He has to juggle on one hand the expectations that this team has to be better, and on the other hand, if I get rid of this guy and try to do something major, then I'm caught out for the following year. I think this year with Andre Bolduc there, uh, he was the assistant head coach in Montreal previously, and, and he may be one that could step up if they need to fill internally. Of course, I think Saskatchewan and their fans are hoping that they will come out strong and be competitive, but what record will they need to be able to continue with that same coaching staff as well? Is 500 good enough? I'm not sure it is. I don't believe it is either. Like I said, I, I think for Coach Dickinson to have any chance at extending, it's a trip to the Western Final at minimum. Now, if they go 15-3 and three and lose in the Western Final, that's very much above expectation at this point. So they might look at extending another year, but a 9-9 a nine and nine season or even a 10-8 and eight season and an early playoff exit is not going to cut it. You could look at Kelly Jeffrey, Jason Shivers. Either one of those two could take over as head coach. Shivers has been with the organization a long time. Kelly Jeffrey has been a head coach before. Granted, it was a college in the States and in Canada. We're not, I guess, it's way too early to speculate if Dickinson can make the year. I think another coach that, that we need to talk about is in Ottawa where coach Bob Dice I think is is a great choice for that organization moving forward and should be able to improve them. Now with Mazzoli out as you spoke to in last week's podcast things could be a little bit different. Um, my hope is that they can continue to be a team that's on an upward swing. Each year I keep thinking they're going to make that step and to date they haven't done that so maybe this is the year. I'm with you on that one, Pat. I have overestimated Ottawa for the previous two seasons in my predictions as well. Long term, they need a healthy Jeremiah Mazzoli in there running that offense. To tread water, Nick Arbuckle needs to step up as well. He looked reliable in the preseason games. And if he elevates to a little bit of a higher level, they're going to be okay. If he struggles out of the gate, and by the time Jeremiah Mazzoli is back in the lineup and they're they're 0 and 2 or 0 and 3, it's tough to come come back from. A leader like that running your offense, though, you can string together five, six, seven wins if they start going in the right direction. But spotting the rest of your division three wins off the bat is a pretty tough mountain to overcome. Arbuckle has to return to the form that he showed when he was with the Calgary Stampeders. This may be his last chance to prove that he can do that. It could be, or Ottawa may be in the trade market if it isn't. Because we don't know for certain that Mazzoli is coming back. There, the deadline for him to be back on the field has passed and passed. A, a simple fact of life. Anytime you open the body up to have surgery, you risk infection. It does, and I think Ottawa's best chance is... Having Jeremiah Mazzoli back in, I agree with you, Heath. And and if he's able to get back in and Ottawa's even gone two and two by that point, if he's out for four, if it's only two weeks, if they're one and one, uh, I think that may give them the ability to go. If they have to go with Arbuckle all year, I do think they're going to be in the market for another quarterback soon. 
the question is then, if you want to move to another quarterback, who's the veteran that you want to grab? And who's, which team is willing to give up that veteran? We do have some backup veterans in the league, but are they sold on the people that they had in camp being able to step into that backup role? Again, hope springs eternal. If Arbuckle takes the Red Blacks into Montreal and beats them, and Ottawa has had good success recently in Montreal, as has Montreal in Ottawa, if the Red Blacks can win opening night. Suddenly, we're not talking about whether Arbuckle can lead them to anything. We're talking about maybe Ottawa's going to be for real after all. Let's hope that's the case. One more coach I'd like to talk about is Chris Jones. With Edmonton's record in the past few years, how long a rope does Chris Jones have to turn this team around? And at what record is that acceptable at the end of this year and beyond? I would say he has more rope than... Craig Dickinson does in Saskatchewan. Chris Jones has his fingerprints all over this team as the coach and general manager. It's an opportunity for him to shape the team as he sees fit. He has done like he does in the in previous opportunities where he blows things up and really starts over. This is the the first year where I think all of those pieces are really starting to come together. Unless they have a disastrous six win season anything beyond that I believe he's going to be safe for another year again I anticipate them taking a step forward from where they were last year getting those first couple of home wins out of the way and under their belts is going to be a huge confidence boost that can propel them to pushing for a third place playoff spot I don't think they're they're a challenge to finish first or second in the west at this point but even within a game of of that third place playoff would be enough to keep Chris Jones safe. His typical trajectory is a bad first season, a much better second season, perhaps a playoff date. And then the third season, that's when the breakthroughs start happening. Now it happened quicker in Edmonton the first time through. In Saskatchewan, that's exactly what happened. In this iteration, it's following that Saskatchewan path. Now we don't know for a fact that they're going to struggle at all this year. Preseason is a great way to mask things, whether a team is really good or a team is really bad. It looks like Winnipeg is is going back to the future in this one. And Sergio Castillo is the place kicker once again in Winnipeg. He had a fantastic 2019 Grey Cup where he went five for five. In my opinion, should have been the MOP of that game. Didn't look quite as sharp in Edmonton last year but Winnipeg feels they have the confidence in him to bring him back for one more year. A little bit surprised that Legio didn't stick around as the punter, given that he is a national player as well, but it seems like the fans and media have had a little bit to do with this. There's a lot of negativity surrounding Mark Legio's performance in Winnipeg. A fresh start might do him well, be that in Edmonton or somewhere else down the line. He's a free agent right now looking for work, but I would not be surprised to see him pop up somewhere if a a kicker struggles early on this season. The winning streak stopped against Montreal when he missed a late game field goal and then hit the upright in overtime. A lot of people hung that loss on him. And then, of course, in the Grey Cup, with the game on the line, You can debate till the cows come home whether that ball was ever going to be on target, but it was a moot point once it was blocked. 
Do you hang that on him? I think kickers are always going to have kicks that they miss. It's when it comes at a crucial time. All of a sudden, they're either the hero or the goat. And and in this case, Mark Leggio is definitely, uh, I mean, he's the one that they've hung this loss on. It appears that he's done in Winnipeg, but I do think he has opportunity. He'll stay in shape. Other teams may struggle, and if their kickers aren't doing what they need to do, he's going to be a viable option for a pickup midseason. One of the things that's been bantied about, and it's been discussed on Three Down Nation, is the whole business. Now that we're seeing the first year of designated Americans being in the lineup, and one of the things that I think we've got to really address is what this means and how it's going to be applied. There's a lot of discussion points going on, and I'm going to try to explain this as best I can. As we head into the season, you can have what are called nationalized Americans. You have to be in the league for five years, which means in 2020 you had to be under contract as well, or you have to be three years with the team to allow for 2020, you've had to have played three games in 2019, doesn't matter which team. Of that group, you can designate two. So they are designated national Americans, one on offense, one on defense, that can participate in the game as stated. Calgary versus BC. Kadeem Carey is the offensive designated nationalized American. The Stampeders have enumerated designated Canadians for whom he would replace. Now, he doesn't have to take their position. He just has to take a spot on the field. Goes out on the second play because he's not eligible by CBA rule to be out there on the first play. So if Calgary pulls out a designated Canadian and puts an American in his place and Kadeem Carey is out there as well, then that counts against the 23 plays that Carey is available, and that moves it down to 22. If one of the designated Canadians is out, but his backup, which is another designated Canadian, comes in and carries out there, his play count stays exactly the same. On defense, Brendan Dozier has that applied to him. If he goes out on the second play and assumes a corner position replacing an American, then Dozier's count doesn't start. But if Derek Wigan gets subbed out in his designated Canadian spot by an American and Dozier is out there, then Dozier's count goes down by one. And this is how this is applied. It's fairly straightforward. You just have to get used to its nuances. But once you do, I think everyone will understand it. And for the average fan, unless you're really perusing the depth chart to understand who's a designated Canadian, who's a designated American, you're probably not going to be too worried about this. Why did they choose 23 plays? The CFL originally had agreed to 49% with the Players Association. Games in no universe are exactly the same length. Yes, they're 60 minutes, but how many plays in a game changes wildly. 49% was going to be almost impossible to figure out. So what they did was they compromised and said, how about 23? They took an average of what most games come in at and the number of plays, and they said, will choose 23. That's probably less than half of that average. Is that okay? I, the team said yes. The Players Association were fine. So again, w one designated nationalized American on offense, one designated nationalized American on defense. They have 23. The CFL will call out. They have spotters. They will call out down to five 
down to one. They are going to let the teams know when they are getting close. It's a work in progress, let's face it. This is week one, so let's be patient. Anytime a rule gets implemented, good teams find a way to take full advantage of it. There's a saying in NASCAR, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. Nobody is cheating. I'm not saying they're cheating, Don. Damn Peters are not cheating either. They are using the rule as it is written. And this is, I think, some of the angst. But ultimately, if Kerry goes in for an American and all the Canadians are still out there, nothing changes. If it's in the rule book, I think the coaches are fully within their rights to be doing whatever they can to put their best players on the field. In this case, Kadeem Carey, we know, is one of the best running backs in the league. So if we're able to designate him, why wouldn't you do it? It's good coaching. Follow the rule book. If the CFL does want to change something, that's going to be up to them to take a look at that. And a situation like this one that you've you've set out for us, it, it's actually brilliant by the Calgary Stampeders coaching staff because there are going to be situations where you want to have less receivers on the field and focus on Kadeem Carey as your back, that starts to eat into your your 23 plays. But you're also going to want to have opportunities where you're spreading the ball around, having as many options out there as you possibly can. Having your Canadian receivers on the field and Kadeem Carey in the backfield creates a lot of weapons for Jake Mayer to utilize. The, the whole point of this is this is the beginning. This is the opening day for this to be applied. And I, I personally don't think there's a problem with it. I know people are saying it's creating a confusion for the average fan, but the average fan won't probably notice this after the opening kickoff. No, I, I agree with you on that one. I was just thinking about that. I couldn't, I couldn't watch a game and tell you how many plays that Canadian receiver was on the field for, but it'll be interesting to watch how coaches adapt to where these designated American players fit into the lineups and possibly how to take advantage of that on the opposite side of the ball. Having not been in the room when the CFLPA and the CFL discussed this rule, I think where some people are questioning is what was the intent of this rule as opposed to is it just to reward a player for being in the league for five years or being with the team for three years or was it to try to extend the the, the playing options for a player to hang on in the league a bit more so that the fans can know those players and, and feel more attached to the players. And I think that's maybe where there's a bit of discussion. Based on what John Hodge wrote, I certainly take that as being his problem with what he sees this rule. It didn't necessarily fit the designation that, that he thought it was intended for. We weren't in the room. We don't know what it was intended for. But if the rule's in the book, you move forward with it. John Hodge is an excellent journalist, but I, I don't necessarily agree with everything that he put into his opinion piece. And the intent was, and, and you hit it, Pat, it's twofold. It's to, it's to give an opportunity to players that are coming close to the end of their career to extend their career because they have a different designation that they're available to fulfill. And the second thing is, as you also elocuted, it's a possible way to keep fan engagement because these guys are still here. And we've screamed mightily about continuity and how we want, if I buy the number seven jersey in Saskatchewan, I don't have to start with Dressler, go to Jefferson, move to Fajardo and wind up with Harris in five years. I want seven to be one of those guys. 
and, and that is the case. I think players do want that continuity on teams as well, because being with a team that is familiar is going to help them. And fans, we love to identify with our favorite player and be able to have that jersey, as you say. We've all bought that jersey, and within a year or two, the way it currently stands with the current CBA, that player's on the move because they've been priced out of this team. I'm going to touch on that player connection a little bit here. One interesting note that came out of the preseason and training camps is the Winnipeg Blue Bombers starting lineup in the Grey Cup. Their starting roster, their starting lineup for this game coming up this week is only missing three. So we're already starting to see, again, when you build success from within your organization, the players want to stay. It really helps. The fans are engaged. They know those guys that have been around for a couple of years are, are back again. And you're seeing those jersey sales, as you mentioned, Pat, and, and people are not going to be afraid to buy some of those jerseys knowing that these guys are sticking around. And it's not just the home team. I mean, how many how many of us can actually, you're, you're a Winnipeg fan. How many people who are not Winnipeg fans themselves can still name many of the players on the roster? And I would say it, it, there's quite a few CFL fans can name Winnipeg's offensive linemen. They can name the linebacking core, the DBs. You can't necessarily do that for Ottawa or Hamilton or other teams, but Winnipeg's continuity makes people connect with them. One of the things that came out in the CFL stats package was that going into week one, I think it's roughly 13% of the player rosters are made up of rookies. I may be off by a couple percent, but it's roughly that. That means that the majority of the players have been there before. We've seen them on the field before. The only thing is, is that at free agent time in February, they move about a little bit. This is, I think, the bigger thing they're trying to address is if you've been with a team three years, you get this designation. It's another way to keep you on the roster. And that may make someone pause and say, well, if I move from here, I don't have that designation from the three years and I've only been here the three. The next year by fourth, I still got another to make it to five. I think it's a win. Anytime we can get continuity for a team and the players there, it is absolutely a win. So I agree with you, Don. If you remember the game between Calgary and BC that was simulcast radio and TV signal, in the beginning of the third quarter, uh, Lions play-by-play announcer Bob Marjanovich really ripped the CFL and CFL Connect especially for not having the stats ready. And I, I didn't appreciate hearing that. If he had a problem with CFL Connect, which it's a new system, it's got its bugs, it's been worked on. The CFL, Steve Daniel has worked tirelessly trying to get this thing going. They've been working for months on this. It's almost there. It still, until you actually get game action, you don't know what could go wrong. So uh, sadly, there's always that element of a beta test, as it were. But to do that publicly, I don't think that was required. He could just realize that there's a problem. I'm not getting the stuff I need. Wait for the commercial break. Steve Daniel works in BC. He could walk down the hall and say, hey, what's going on? And realistically, preseason games are the time to work out those kinks, be it in the technical aspect, 
with players, with officials, with coaches, with stadiums, how they operate, that's the time to work out those kinks. You don't see them calling out if a a referee blows a call in a preseason game with that same kind of vitriol. I, I agree with you, Don. I don't think it was directed properly. Now, if there's something going on and it's Grey Cup Sunday and they're still having those struggles, it may be time to voice your concern. But certainly in the, the first or second preseason game, it's it's time to just work together and get that product to to where it needs to be. Let's go to our fearless, tireless, and somewhat ubiquitous predictions. So what I've done for the East, I'm I'm a big Bo Levi Mitchell fan. I do like what Hamilton's been doing. I'm putting them back in first, 11 and 7. I've got Toronto, Chad Kelly. Big question in my mind about what kind of leader he's going to become. He's shown a lot, but he has to show a lot more because this is this is his ship to run. It's up to him now. Ben Holmes has been released. He's the man. Toronto, I'm picking 9-9. Nine and nine. I'm getting Ottawa a lot of love by putting them up at 9-9. Nine and nine. And then Montreal, I just, I'm not trusting Cody Fajardo. This is such a quarterback-driven league. Fajardo, this will be his make-or-break year in terms of his future. We'll see. But I'm putting Montreal at 6-12. and 12. I think they're in transition right now. I agree with you, Don. I have Hamilton at 11-7. and seven. Uh, I have them finishing first. Toronto, I've taken a bit of a risk moving them to 10 and 8 this year. If Chad Kelly does perform as we hope he might, I do see them getting there. Their defense, I think, is still dominant. I have both Montreal and Ottawa at 7 and 11. Uh, and the only reason I did that with Ottawa, I thought they might come higher this year, but with Mazzoli not being a player, I thought that he may actually have a regression. And I think he would give them at least two more wins were he in. There's also Mondrashik or Money Hunter, who's not available. Shaq Evans, who's not available. Ottawa is hurting a little bit going into Montreal, but I like the attitude change there. And I think Bob Dice is finally getting his opportunity in, and he will be a good coach for that team. Heath. So just before we hit record here, Don accused me of stealing his picks in the East and looking at the numbers were we're only one game different. And that difference is I have the Hamilton Tiger Cats picking up an extra win and finishing at 12 and 6 overall in the East. I think a, a reinvigorated Bo Levi Mitchell is going to lead the charge for the Hamilton Tiger Cats and get them geared up for that home Grey Cup game in November. Toronto and Ottawa, again, finishing at 500 at 9-9 nine and nine for both of those teams. Pat, you hit the nail on the head. Chad Kelly is the question mark for me at quarterback for the Toronto Argonauts. I'm not giving him even as much credit as you. That's why I've got them finishing at 500. And you, you spoke to the question marks with the Ottawa Red Blacks and their, their injury woes. Montreal, too much change on offense for them. Cody Fajardo does come in to replace Trevor Harris, but they've also lost Jake Wenicke, Eugene Lewis on that offense. And unless they get a 1,600-yard season from William Stanback, I see the struggles for the Alouettes and a 6-12 and record for them. Heading west, as much as I thought Father Time was going to catch up to the Blue Bombers last year, it didn't. I think they're good for one more year at the top of the west. After that, the bets are off as far as I'm concerned. 
12 and 6, Winnipeg wins the West, but BC is hot on their heels at 11 and 7. I've always been a fan of Vernon Adams Jr. Let's not underestimate Jordan Maximic and how important he is to that BC Lions offense. And maybe Nathan Rourke put up a lot of big numbers because Maximic knew how to run an offense that made him the quarterback that he became. Calgary at 10 and 8. Defense is the question mark there. A lot of changes, especially on the defensive line. Edmonton, could they get into the playoffs? It's going to be one of those crossover deals. Can they outdo somebody in the East? But I'm not convinced they're going to be all the way there yet. Nine and nine. And then Saskatchewan, if they lose in Edmonton and lose big, I think this team's in trouble right off the top. And I'm putting them dead last at four and 14. Interesting to see. I also have Winnipeg finishing at 12 and 6 and leading the West. The 15 and 3 record was a bit surprising last season for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. I thought they were actually a better team altogether in 2021 than they were in 2022, but they managed to eke out those tough wins. Father Time is undefeated. I, I agree with you. I believe they've got a little bit more of a window here. And I guess the biggest thing for me is why I've put them at the top is I don't really see any of the other teams pushing them out of the way. That offense, Zach Kolaris has a lot of weapons. Kenny Lawler is going to get his legal issues sorted out and, and be back in probably week four or five of the season. And you, you partner him with Dalton Schoen. Those are the two leading receivers over the last two seasons. Drew Wolitarski, Nick Dembski, Carlton Agadosi, Brady Oliveira out of the backfield, two of the best offensive linemen in the game and a two-time reigning MOP. That's going to be an exciting offense to watch. And their defense has been one of the best in the league as well. So 12-6 and six for the Bombers. BC at 10-8, and eight, they do have a lot of weapons as well. Vernon Adams and Dane Evans as the one-two punch at quarterback is going to carry them through to second place. I've got Calgary finishing 9-9. Nine and nine. I'm not sold on Jake Mayer as an elite quarterback in this league. He has potential to prove me wrong and, and we can watch Calgary go 4-14. Four and 14. But at this point, I'm picking them to be a 500 team. Edmonton much improved at 8-10 and 10, and Saskatchewan with all of the changes that they've had and the uncertainty at the head coach and general manager positions. I've got 7-11 seven, seven and 11 for the Rough Riders this year. I'm, I'm very similar in, in some of these picks. I certainly agree that Winnipeg is going to be the strongest team. I don't have them winning as many as I chose last year. I was 13-5 last year. This year, I think 12-6. and six. I think Father Time is starting to catch up with this team a little bit. I'm not sure the running game will be as effective as it has been, especially two years ago. I think we saw a bit of a drop-off last year. And I think that'll put more pressure on Zach Caleros. And there were times when he was under pressure and, and he did struggle. I don't know that we'll see that with the receiving core. He's got a great group of receivers. I agree. The defense is still a strength, but some of the defense are getting old as well. Last year, I, I thought we had a bit of a drop-off in Jeffcoat. Jefferson and Big Hill are still outstanding talents. They can be built on, but I don't see the younger big playmakers coming up at this point with this team, and I think they may need some of that. So 12-6, and six, they still be the, the class of the CFL. I picked them to finish first, but I, I think they're going to be coming down to meet the rest of the league a little bit. I chose BC to be second. They're not as good a team without Rourke. I do like Vernon Adams and Dane Evans, but both quarterbacks have been inconsistent at times, and I think that's likely to continue. 
there is a top receiving group out in BC. And I think that bodes very well. The question mark I have is the new running back, Taquan Mazel, going to be able to step in and be as effective as Butler was last year? I'm not sure he will. BC's defense remains solid, so I've got them at second. The next one was where I really struggled to pick. I picked Calgary at 9-9. Nine and nine. I wasn't sure if I should pick Saskatchewan or Calgary in that position. I think, though, Calgary, Jake Mayer is going to face pressure being the man without any veteran quarterbacks really standing behind him. He struggled in the playoffs. I'm hoping he bounces back and has a good season. Kadeem Carey is definitely going to be the strength of this team. Their running game was outstanding. As long as they can get out in front and hold it, I think Calgary will continue to do well here. The defense on Calgary, I agree, Don, is a question mark this year. Losing Jameer Thurman and you know some of the other players out there, Florin Ormolade is a big loss as well, but I think this team can remain competitive if they can fill those gaps. Cameron Judge had a solid year last year. He is getting a little bit older, but I think he's still a solid uh, linebacker, but he's going to need to continue to play at the level he did last year for that defense to be successful. I see Saskatchewan falling at 8-10. and 10. Uh, The team could be higher if they settle all the issues that plagued them last year. It starts with Harris at quarterback. If he can get a quick release in Kelly Jeffrey's new offense, then I think they can build on that. Their running backs, I think, are still a bit of a question mark because the offensive line at times didn't have a good push, and it seems like the offensive line is still a little unsettled. The coach said today that they don't know exactly who their starter is going to be. We've had a few people leave with injuries or personal issues, and I think that could factor into Saskatchewan finishing 8-10. and 10. They have a solid group of Canadians as receivers. Jake Wynicke and Daryl Walker are great additions, but they're not the elite receivers that some of the other teams have. Their defense struggled mightily last year, and I'm not sure that the people they have in there, Micah Tights, is he going to be a strong linebacker? Can Larry Dean at his age remain a force? That's why I ended up with Saskatchewan at 8-10. and 10. In the end, I went with Edmonton at 7-11. I think there's going to be more parity across the league. They should win a home game this year. Uh, Chris Jones, I think, will undoubtedly continue to juggle with his roster and find new faces, but some of the gems we'll see come forward. The guys like Dylan Mitchell, who played last year, they picked up Steve Dunbar Jr. and Eugene Lewis, so that's an outstanding receiving core. The question is, can Taylor Cornelius get them the ball consistently? I think we'll continue to see growth with him. Finally, with Edmonton, I I like their defense, but they're young, and it takes a while for a defense to really gel. Can the defensive backs turn it around? Last year, they were a real weak point with Edmonton, and I don't see that being better yet. The one thing that I've heard about the Elks is that Taylor Cornelius can throw the ball just about anywhere, and with that receiving core, they'll catch it. Yeah. That could be the thing that could vault them over the top. If if their defense can can become a better unit, then then yes, they could start moving forward. I think they're going to be closer to 500, but not there yet. There's some phenomenal receiving cores in the West here. We, we touched on it. I think Winnipeg, Edmonton, and BC have some outstanding cores. There's great players on Calgary and Saskatchewan as well. But, but those three teams, if a quarterback gets hot, we can see some 450-yard passing games with four or five touchdown passes. It's, it's going to be really, really exciting. So let's go now to the games that are coming up in the Canadian Football League, and let's look at the uh, spreads so far. 
Opening night, Thursday, Thursday night football in the Canadian Football League. The British Columbia Lions are in Calgary to take on the Stampeders at McMahon Stadium. Calgary, minus three at home. I'm taking the Lions against the spread. I agree. Well, I guess the first game's unanimous. We'll see how the rest of the season goes. <laughs> I'm loving this that there's a game a night. Friday night, Hamilton's in Winnipeg. The Blue Bombers at home, minus five. They have owned Hamilton Winnipeg is also very good on opening night. However, last year, if we remember, but for some clock mistakes by the Red Blacks at the end of the second quarter, would Ottawa have come away with a win? And what would their world have been like after that? Having said all that, I'm taking Hamilton to beat the spread. I'm not. I think Winnipeg should cover the spread. I think they'll come out strong and... uh... I think this will be their first win and they should be able to get it by more than five points. The biggest question mark for me is Zach Kolaris played week one of preseason limited action and didn't see game action in in week two. How sharp is he going to be at the start of this game? This is a huge matchup between quarterbacks as well. We've got the new Hamilton Tiger Cats, Bo Levi Mitchell at the helm. But I think in the arms race, his weapons around him fall a little bit short to what Winnipeg has to offer on offense. So I am taking Winnipeg to cover the five-point spread in this one. Saturday night in Montreal. It's Ottawa in Montreal. Montreal minus 2.5. I'm taking Ottawa. I'm back and forth on this one, and I am going to give the nod to the home team, the Montreal Alouettes, uh, to cover the spread in this one. And I, I think the big reason for that is the Nick Arbuckle quarterback situation with the Red Blacks. I believe that Ottawa is going to struggle a little bit to find form. Uh, Cody Fajardo does need to step up and lead his team to victory. Uh, This is a big first week for him. It's going to be a close game, but uh, I I believe that a field goal wins it for the Alouettes. I'm like you, Heath. I really struggled with this one more than the other games, but I do think this one that Ottawa should be able to cover here. I think they're going to win the game. The final game of the weekend, Sunday night, something that fans asked for and the CFL responded. Sunday games through until the NFL starts. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders are in Edmonton to take on the Elks at Commonwealth. Edmonton is favored at minus 2.5. I'm with that. I'm betting the line. I'm going to take the Elks to eke out a one-point win. So Elks get their home win, but do not cover the spread in this one. I'm going to take Saskatchewan. I don't think the Elks will win this one. It would be great if they would, but I think Saskatchewan will come out firing and and they should be able to get this one. It should be a close game, though. It's all coming at you. CFL 2023 season is about to begin. I'm stoked. I'm excited. Hope springs eternal in nine different cities. Come November, we'll find out who is justified in that hope. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again, the Third Down Gamble podcast, audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League Player and Game Statistics for analytics, game notes, and statistics 
and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.